Glad to see you all. Let me have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to cover almost all of John chapter 4 today, which is a tall feat, but uh, it, it's a narrative. It, it all goes together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, down the middle column of seats there, underneath that seat, there should be some Bibles. And so if you don't, aren't using a, a, a tablet or a, a, a smartphone, you are welcome to, uh, to grab one of those, use it as we're going through the scriptures today together. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to have that. John chapter 4, we're going to be reading verse 1 through 45. Actually, because, uh, I mean, this is a long text, so we aren't going to read the scriptures out loud together as we, uh, we normally do. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to get going. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship, to gather as your as your church, I got we're reminded um, as the sun came up today behind those clouds and uh, we felt the warmth and the humidity of the day that uh, you are a good God that blesses us with the, uh, the creativeness of, of your world. And so, God, we are privileged to be a part of uh, not only your world, but to be uh, intimately involved in what you're doing in the world through your church. Uh, as we gather at your church today, God, we pray uh, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you would have us uh, to know from this passage in John chapter 4. God, we pray uh, for those who especially have ex experienced shame and, and ridicule and embarrassment from the labels that, that have been placed on them in life. God, that they would experience a measure of freedom today um, through the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're talking about Things that define us and mark us. We're going to talk about labels, and we're going to do that under the guise of John chapter 4. In your seat, there was an index card with a pen on it. Some of you have already started writing on it, folding it, bending it. Leave it alone. Put it down. <laughs> we're going to use that later on in the, in the sermon today. So just set that aside. Um, here's the thing. We all have labels. What's a label? A label are those names that you might have been called. It's, it's those ways that you might have been marked by an experience that you had growing up or perhaps by uh, just how life evolved, things that people called you. We, we, we all have labels. They seem, to, um, we, they seem to really form as we're growing up. Here's the thing about labels. Sometimes they're true, but oftentimes they're not. And many of them come from outside of us. They come from the experience of you growing up. They may come from uh, things that you've exposed yourself to. They may come from you looking at other people and how their lives are going and how they are either successful or maybe not so successful. And you, from that, extracting how you should be living your life. Let me give you a little insight into my life. My first label came at the expense of my brother Greg. My brother Greg was not perfect, but, I mean, he was like an all-American. He, he did everything well. You ever had anybody around you, friend, family, uh, that just did everything well? And so I grew up in my brother's shadow. Um, he was academically gifted. Uh, he had a whole bunch of friends, both in our neighborhood and in school. Uh, he was athletically, uh, athletically gifted. I mean, he could play. He just pick something up and just play it. Um, without even trying. Um, and so going through school, I was two years behind my brother, and uh, whenever I got to a new grade, I, I was never Jeff, I was always Greg's brother. So 
I was Greg's brother. That was my first label. That's not a bad label to have. Uh, but fast forward, my brother is 16 years old, and I walk into the kitchen, and my brother is attempting suicide. I won't tell you how. Um, but the brother that really had become my identity because I was, I was living in his shadow, I wanted to be just like my brother. Um, my world crashed because my identity, my idol, was no longer the person that I thought he was. That was my first label. Another level came in elementary school. Y'all ever notice how, how kids, when they grow, they grow out first and they grow up? All right, so third grade, you know, I'm having a growth spurt. I'm growing out. And I grew out. And I grew out. And the up didn't happen till like, after sixth grade. And so uh, I was chubby. I, you know, big C word chubby. Now, I didn't even know I was chubby until I was at a family event. And one of my, one of my aunts came up to me and said, you're gaining weight. And from that, I mean, I got all kind of self-conscious. And I was only in the third grade. So that was unfair. And so from that moment, I was like, what can I do to not be chubby? Because I, mean, I was trying to be like my brother. And my brother was like the model everything. And so that was when I started playing tennis. I had an opportunity. A friend of mine was playing tennis with the rec league. I went and played tennis. That's when I started running. I mean, who, who ever heard of a third grader running? I started running because I was playing tennis. I mean, all these things were set in motion. So my second label was I was chubby. And I lived that chubbiness until ninth grade of high school when actually my, my, growth, my growth spurt kicked in. I'm convinced uh, as I lived through, we used to call it junior high school. It's called middle school now. I'm convinced that uh, the reality that sin exists in the world is because of what people go through during middle and high school. It's just so much in there that happens to you for which you can be labeled for. And I, my kids are in here, and so I can't tell you all the labels that I got in middle and high school, but just know there were at least three or four of them that we could discuss in this setting. And those of you that have gone through middle and high school, you, you know what they are, and you have them possibly too. And the last label that I will share with you came when I was in at West Point. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I, I was a, I don't want to call it smart. I did well in school. Uh, I was more of, of the, the kid that everybody, you know, I, I, I did well. Uh, I did what I was supposed to do. I was into everything. And because of that, the teachers liked me and I got, I got good grades. I don't know if that was because I was doing well or because the, the teachers liked me. So I got to West Point. Um, I somehow got into West Point. And then about three months in, I mean, it kicked in. I was at West Point. You know, Ivy League level academics and everything I knew from high school and beyond, it was exhausted. I was on my own. And I found myself at the end of that year, my first, my first year at West Point, with a 1.7 GPA. And so... Uh, you know, fast forward a couple months, I'm in my second year as a yearling, and call it sophomore, and my tack comes up, I play tennis, my tack comes up and says, hey Jeff, um, I don't know if you know this, but you're not doing well academically, and, uh, and so he's like, so you got a choice, you can either stop playing tennis or you can um, graduate, which one do you want to do? Uh, and so I stopped playing tennis, that was the end of my tennis career, I had, tennis was one of my identities, it was like one of my labels, tennis player, and I had done okay with it, and so from that West Point experience, I got the label of not smart enough. And I would tell you, of all the labels that I've had in my life, this is the one that, that really I, I, I work and I work and I work to overcome. Because even today, I've got two master's degrees, and I'm working on a third one right now because I'm trying to overcome this label of 
At West Point, I had a 1.7 and I almost failed out. I wasn't smart enough. I was in it over my head. What, what are your labels? What have you experienced in life that, that's marked you and that people have said to you and that stuck in you and caused you to overcompensate or, or either to be shameful or not even like yourself to the point that you don't want to be around people because of what they think about you or what you think about yourself? What does your label say? What experiences have you had for which you've, I mean, you give yourself a label? Perhaps some of you here have experienced uh, sexual promiscuity at a very early age and it marked you for uh, a number of years in your life. Perhaps you had a weight problem like I did at a very early age and you weren't able to escape it. I would say 80% of the guys in here at some point, uh, either a brother or a relative or some friend in your neighborhood exposed you to, to pornography. And as it goes with most men, I mean, this is one thing, we don't talk about this. We don't talk about this outright, but for most men, 80% of us, once your, once your eyes see it, I mean, we, uh, we're enticed by our eyes, what we see. Once you see it, you want to keep seeing it. And it plagues some men for years. What about drugs? A lot of times we're exposed to drugs. And, and that, that, I mean, just like any other addiction, it, it catches us and we could be labeled as a drug addict as well. Another way we get labels are those hurtful things said to us. Perhaps uh, over and over as you were growing up, somebody said, you don't measure up. You're not smart enough. You're not skinny enough. Labels also follow, follow us into adulthood. Perhaps you're trying to overcome labels right now as you sit here. Uh, are you dealing with something like uh, you work too much, you're a workaholic, you don't work enough, you're lazy, you didn't get the college degree that you need. I mean, you, you don't live in the house you, you should be living in. Those are labels that we all deal with. And that really does bring us to our text. We're in the Gospel of John, and we've been in this book for several months, and we're working our way progressively to it. And what John aims to do is to prove that Jesus is God. And the way that John does that is, you know, he... he uh, he gives us snapshots of who Jesus is. More importantly, John introduces us to a bunch of characters who uh, he has encounters with. And we see a lot of signs, a lot of miracles where Jesus is uh, encountering somebody and that encounter changes their life. Mostly Jesus wants, uh, John the evangelist wants us to believe. In John 20, 31, he says these words, but these are written all the things he wrote in his gospel are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, leave, by believing, you may have life in his name. And so that's what we're going to pick up in John chapter 4. In John 4, John has an encounter with the woman that has a label. She has a label. Let's read. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for, the, for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so here's a setting. Uh, we're picking up uh, as John chapter 3 ended. We looked at that last week. Jesus has, 
He's just, uh, there's a transition that's, that's begun. John the Baptist's ministry uh, amongst the nation of Israel is decreasing, and Jesus really is, is becoming more prominent. His ministry really is outright starting uh, right here. The transition happens, uh, and then we learn a conflict is brewing. brewing. Um, all of the, the Jews start flocking to Jesus. Okay, they stop going to John the Baptist. They're starting to follow Jesus around. And this is what's happening. The Pharisees don't like it because they're not sure who Jesus is. Um, they think he's just some religious nut, and, and people are following him for the popularity of it. And so instead of having a confrontation with the, with the, with the religious people at that moment, Jesus decides he's going to start traveling. And what we see in this passage here is Jesus is in, uh, he's in Judea, the countryside of Judea, right? Remember he was baptizing in, uh, in chapter 3. He's going to go back, uh, go back north. So he's in, uh, he's in uh, Judea, which is outside of Jerusalem, and it's go all the way back north to Galilee. Um, and Galilee is important because that's Jesus' home base. He'll, he'll go in and out of Galilee throughout all of his ministry as we see the Gospels unfold. Now, Samaria is important here. Um, Jews did not like Samaritans. In, in fact, I'm, I'm, using, uh, I'm, I'm saying that uh, a little nicer than uh, a Jewish person would. A Jewish person would use the H word. A, a Jew hated a Samaritan, and it dated all the way back to the Old Testament times um, when the northern kingdom of Israel was, uh, was invaded and uh, the kingdom fell in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians funneled in all these Gentile for, foreign people and they mixed with the Samaritans. So much so that the Samaritans, I mean, they became mixed race, mixed gender people, and they also became mixed worship people. They worshiped not only, they, they, they didn't just worship uh, Jehovah God anymore. And from this, the, the, the native Jews hated, they hated the Samaritans. And so what's going on here is the text says Jesus is going from, I mean, outside of Jerusalem, all the way back up to Galilee, and it says he has to go through Samaria. A Jew would not have gone through Samaria. Samaria was like the ghetto. Y'all know where the ghetto is, right? Y'all, ghetto. Think, culturally, put yourself in, the, in, 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 in this context. Think about uh, that section of town here in D.C. Metro, wherever you live, that you will not go, to, go through. Think about those people that as hard as you try, you, can, you can't figure them out. And because you can't figure them out, you don't want to go near them. And so uh, the quickest distance from D.C. to New York is up 95, right? So a Jew going from New York, from, from D.C. to New York, they would go west to West Virginia, North to Pennsylvania, and they hit, they hit um, New York City from, from west to east. That's what a Jew would do here as well with uh, going around Samaria. And the interesting thing is the text tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That means there's a divine appointment that's going to happen. We're going to touch that in a second. The other thing to notice is in verse 6. The text says Jesus was weary. You know, a lot of times, obviously, John's point is that Jesus is God. There's this theological um, concept called hypostatic union that says Jesus is both God and man. And what John is trying to point out here in regards to, to Jesus is this, although, you know, he's in very much right, God himself, God in flesh, incarnated, was used to be in heaven, now he's in flesh here on earth, he's also 
a man, very much a man in that when he walks, his legs get tired, he sweats, he needs to rest. I mean, he's probably like leaned over on the well, huffing, wanting some water. That's the, uh, that's the scenario that we approach. Uh, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So we don't know this woman's name. We find out a little bit about her label a few verses down. But she was coming to the, water, uh, to the well to, to draw water. She needed some water. What was the water for? It was the same purpose that you use water. Cleaning, cleansing, cooking. Okay, She was going to get that. It was a woman's job to come typically early in the morning and get that water and take it back to their household. It was noon. Okay, The sixth hour means it was like broad daylight. It would have been hot, like capital H, hot. This is Middle East. Regardless of what time, uh, what season of year it is, when the, when the heat tap comes out, it's pressing down on you, and you're going to be hot. You're going to sweat. Verse 8 tells us um, the disciples left Jesus. They just left him there. I don't know if Jesus couldn't, couldn't, couldn't hack the walking, but they went to get lunch. And so this is a chance to meet up. It says Jesus and this, and this woman who he doesn't know. She is very likely uh, surprised when he starts talking to her. And he's like, all right, so it's just me and you. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. Give me some water. Because she had all the accoutrements to get the water out of the well. And so she looks over and is like, should you be talking to me? So here's the deal. Um, there's three things going, three taboos that Jesus is like messing up here. First of all, if you were a man, a Jewish man, you didn't speak to a woman out in public. You just didn't. Secondly, um, if you were uh, a, a rabbi, you definitely wouldn't have spoken to a woman, but the type of woman that she was. And Jesus, being a prophet, would have known what type of woman that she was. In fact, the reason that she was there at noon instead of early in the morning when all the other women would have been getting water was a sign that, hey, she's, something's going on with this woman. She's not here at the right time. And the other thing is, a Jew didn't befriend a Samaritan. All right, we already talked about it. Jews hated Samaritan. And so all this is going on. Jesus, in this little section here, bypasses every cultural barrier that he possibly could to bring a special moment to this woman, obviously for a very special purpose. Uh, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you go to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus takes a conversation about him being thirsty and needing water and he turns it into a, a spiritual conversation 
with a woman who, who needed to hear those words. A woman who, need, who needed not just water, she needed living water. What's living water? She needed life. In Jesus' day, living water referred to fresh running water as opposed to the water that would be stagnant at the bottom of a well. And so this is what Jesus is offering this young lady. We don't know if she's young. She's young. He, he's, offering her, he's offering her himself. He's like, you don't know this, but I've got water that you've never tasted. And if you taste just one drop of my water, you'll never need the water that you're seeking ever again. And, and you know, she has a little bit of intellect. She's like, all right, so, okay, give me this water. But she, she's missing it. She's, she's actually thinking culturally of, of like fresh springs. It's like Fiji water. Y'all ever drank, y'all ever fell into that gimmick, buy that high price, four or $5 water, fools. I'm sorry, did I say that? <laughs> All right, drink some tap water. That's what she's thinking. All right, he's got some Fiji water. I'm getting ready to get me some nice, fresh, cool water to cool off my body. He's like, nah, that ain't it. I got some water for you, but that's, that's not it. Uh, he's, he's saying the ultimate reference here is uh, the gift of abundant life. He's offering her himself. He's like, take me. I, I'm water that you'll drink and you'll never be thirsty again. And of course, because he's the Messiah, he's the only one that can give her that. And so in, in verse 12, uh, she asked Jesus, I mean, are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? He's like, surely. I mean, this is a historic spot. I mean, this is the very spot that, that Jacob, the patriarch, was, and he gifted this well and all this land to his son, Joseph. And, you know, Joseph, Joseph was the second in command of all of Egypt. I mean, surely you can't be better and greater than, than all of those people. And Jesus basically, I mean, he goes around it. He didn't even answer her question. He basically says, look, dude, um, look, look, lady, I'm greater. I, I'm here. I'm offering you something you don't have. I am greater. Here's, the, 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 here's the, the, the message behind all these, these, these words here. Jesus is speaking to a woman who's an outcast. She, she is on the outskirts of even her own community, and he's speaking to her. She's drawing water at noon when women will normally come at the cool of day. She's deliberately coming to a, uh, at a time when she, no one else would be there. She's, I mean, she, she's trying to escape the, the ridicule and the shame of her own life amongst her own people. And for whatever reason, Jesus is engaging her in all the ways that he, he really shouldn't engage her. Why was he doing that? Because he's trying to offer her life. Think about this. Jew, Jews didn't like Samaritans. And this lady is a Samaritan in her own area, and she can't even come and be around her own people. Can you imagine what kind of shame she felt from the things that she did? Can you imagine what labels her own people had put on her in regards to the way that she was living life? And what was she doing? She was, she was trying to escape the life that she had built for herself. Her label was so condemning and damning that she didn't want to be around anybody. She didn't even have anybody to come and draw water with her. Not even a friend to come and draw water with her. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband 
For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Of course, that's the, the ultimate, duh. Um, I mean, what's Jesus doing here? He's unpacking her label. I mean, he's, he's doing it in a very gracious way. But he's saying, all right, so I, I, I know you got some labels. I, I know there's something about you. You wouldn't be here at noon in the heat of the day trying to sneak and get some water and take it back to wherever you live um, if, if something weren't going on. But the neat thing is Jesus didn't come out and just condemn her. He didn't come out and call her an adulterer or, you know, the, the WH word. I mean, he didn't say any of that. He gently exposed her need of God's forgiveness. Jesus doesn't beat her over the head. He doesn't say, I, I can't believe you had five husbands and you're living with someone else that's probably going to be your sixth husband. He didn't do any of that. But, but here's the, the thing that we have to see in this. He also doesn't let her off the hook. I mean, he keeps pressing her. He doesn't change the subject. He doesn't go, oh, oh man, it's hot out here. I mean, weren't you going to pour me some water? What's up with that? He keeps pressing her about, about her issue, the issue for which uh, she has probably a life of shame. He presses her so that she knows that she's not alone. And here's the thing I think that would be appropriate for us. You know, a lot of times we have friends that are in blatant sin, and we, we know what they're doing. And instead of doing like Jesus, uh, gently with, with grace, pressing our friends in regards to their sin, we change the subject. We talk about the weather. We talk about the, what's going on, playing at the movies. We talk about going to the mall. And we let our friends continue in their sin. And, and, and I understand that. We do it because we don't want to lose a friend. We do it because the, the hip thing in our culture today is, is being um, tolerant of other people's uh, sexual orientation and of the things that they want to do with their own lives. But I think here, the, the exhortation from Scripture is when we see people that are deliberately seeking to satisfy themselves and we have living water, then we're doing a disservice to our king who offers the water and we're doing a disservice to our, our friends who we could say, you know what, you're trying all this stuff to satisfy yourself, but, but, but I have something that you probably haven't tried before. Have you, have you tried Jesus? He, he can truly satisfy you. I know you think that all this stuff that you're doing is going to meet your needs, and it may even be fun, but here's something that can actually help you and help you eternally. Verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, uh, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And so uh, the, the conversation is progressing. And, and Jesus, of course, is, is leading this conversation. And it turns to the topic of worship. And really, the, the subject is, is how do we worship? Now, the, the woman, this is the question that she asked. 
Where are we supposed to worship? Why is that? Because the, the, Jew, the Samaritans thought that they built uh, an alternate worship spot on Mount Gerizim, where they, a whole temple where they went to worship. And the Jews are worshiping still at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so she's like, all right, so I know you're a prophet and you, you understand God and all that stuff. And so uh, as a Samaritan, I'm supposed to worship here. I know Jews are supposed to worship over there. Which one is it? And Jesus says to her, well, neither. True worship comes from inside of you as you are, uh, as you are with a heart that's, that's re- really right toward God, rendering sacrificial praise to him. He, he says true worship comes from a, heart, from a heart that's spirit and in truth. That's a hard phrase to to unpack, and we can't give it justice in this setting here, but really what he's talking about is the worship that we give to God can't be merely external. It has to be spiritual and, and internal. You know, a lot of times we mix, we mistake spirited worship for spiritual worship. Um, spirited worship is, is when I think if I lift my hands, I'm worshiping God. Spirited worship would be, you know, the, the old... I used to be Pentecostal, so you know, running around, running around the room. Don't do that. We're gonna run around. We're gonna take some laps around the room to show God our praise. That's spirited worship. We might even dance a little bit. It's okay to worship God like I'm actually okay with us worshiping God like that. Not right now. But it's also spirited worship is also not uh, a pious kind of worship where we only sing hymns. We got an organ playing. This choir in the robe. And they've got their hands like this, and we're, and we're all pious. I mean, that may not come from the heart as well. I think the most vivid picture of spirit, a spiritual type of worship, worship in spirit, is what we see in Acts chapter 16. We, we talked about this maybe two weeks ago. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Philippi. They have come to, to plant a church. And so they, uh, they meet a woman named Lydia uh, at a place of prayer. She becomes a convert, and then they go to the, 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 the town, the city of Philippi, and uh, there's a, a demon-possessed girl who's a slave following behind them. And she's like, these are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. And Paul gets tired of this, this girl, you know, chanting from a you know, this demon incantation. And he's like, come out of her, you demon. And they get put in jail because the slave owner, uh, his livelihood has been taken away. And so in the middle of the night, in jail, shackled to a floor, Paul and Barnabas start singing hymns, the, the scripture says. And we don't know what they were singing. They might have been singing Amazing Grace. Well, Amazing Grace wasn't around that time. They were singing something that had some spirit in it. Because at midnight, the earth shook a little bit, and somehow the, 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 the walls, the cell of the, the jail came open and released all the prisoners. I, I think that's a, an example of, of worship in spirit. What was it? There was something inside of them that had surrendered to God, even in their plight. In, in good times and in bad times, I, I know who my Redeemer is, and I'm going to give him the, the worship and the praise he deserves, even, even, if I'm, even if things are going bad. I think that's the best example. That's worship in spirit. And the other part is worship in truth. And this suggests that we know who we are worshiping. The second commandment says, you shall have no other gods 
before me, before him, before the one true God. And I think to to not worship other gods before the true God is to know who God is. If, if you don't know who he is, then you'll worship anything. And I would tell you, uh, some of us in here and definitely everybody in the world, we're worshiping all kind of things that we have created to be gods that aren't really God. We worship our jobs and our money and our retirement account and our kids and our houses and our stuff and our time and our relationships. We have all these things that we worship. And the, and the, and the second commandment is true. Don't put anything before God. Why? Because that's idolatry. And so we're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. And then what happens next is, is probably the most special thing that happens in, in all this, this passage. So Jesus is talking to this woman who is adulterous in the midst of her sin. In the heat of the day, he's tired and he shouldn't be talking to her at all, according to the Jewish custom. And yet he, he unpacks for her. He tells her something that he doesn't tell anybody else, at least in the Gospel of John. He outright tells her, I am the Messiah that you seek. She's like, look, I'm looking for the Messiah, the Christ that's supposed to come. When he comes, I'll know how to worship. And so Jesus says, I who speak to you, I am. That really is what he says. In the Greek, the word is uh, ego ime, which, which is simply I am. Jesus reveals to her, that he is the promised Old Testament Messiah to this wretched, sinful woman. You can't get more grace than that. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the, t- out of the town. Uh, they went out of town and were coming to him. And so this woman leaves her water jar. The very thing that she came to the well for, she forgets all about it because something has happened to her. She, she came to the water jar with all these labels and she has an encounter with Jesus. And somewhere in the midst of them talking about where to worship, how to worship, worship me. She has this epiphany. My labels don't matter. My my labels don't matter because I've met one who graced me, who loved me, who accepted me despite my label. And so what does she do? Leaves a water jar and she goes back to her own hometown somewhere near there in Samaria, Samaria, And she tells everybody that she knew about Jesus. Everybody. And this is this is interesting because, you know, this is what this is what Jesus could have done. He could have. I mean, it could have been a wealthy person that, you know, someone affluent, someone that was well respected in in the society that he had this encounter with because wealthy people and affluent people, they got jumped too, right? You also say yes, because y'all are those. Okay, but but. It's incredible to me. Jesus always picks the person with the, the biggest sin to have. I mean, because why? Because they provide the biggest impact. It's the it's those with the it's those that know they are they're messed up that have the biggest testimony. And so this lady, I mean, she was toe up from the flow up. Is how they say it in my house. 
All right, not my house here, my, my house house in North Carolina. All right, so she had a lot of junk going on. And she goes back to her hometown, and we don't know what she says, but she's like, this is what happened, guys. I mean, y'all know me. I'm kind of messed up. I'm a sinner. I got some labels. But I just met this dude, Jesus. And I, I think he's Messiah, like Christ, because he could... He told me everything about me and he was right and it tore me down like to my core. But then he like put me all back together again with his words and he didn't even hug me. It's like he did all this incredible stuff for me. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat because uh, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who, keep, who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Um, remember verse 4? Chapter 4, verse 4. We, I said hold on to that because we're gonna, it's going to make sense later on in the passage. This is, this is where you have to connect verse 4 to what Jesus is saying. Verse 4, he said, he had to pass through Samaria. And so when he said that, uh, this section that follows up gives the reason why. He says, the fields are white unto harvest. And that gives us a clue that Jesus wasn't just going to Samaria because he felt like he was, I mean, because it was the, 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 the less steps to get back to, um, back to Galilee, his home base. He was going through Samaria because there was a divine appointment scheduled for him there. The Holy Spirit, the, the same way that Jesus lived his life on earth, is the way that he uh, set as an example for us to live our life on earth. And the Holy Spirit spoke. And Jesus listened, and he told him, go to Samaria, although you're tired, go to Jacob's well. There's going to be someone there waiting for you. All right, those, those words aren't in the text. I'm giving you the background behind the text, obviously. What he's pointing out is that when we take the initiative to open our mouth and to share something about Jesus, we're not alone. In fact, when you take the time to share something about your own life, we call it witnessing or your testimony to someone else that needs to know about him, he's saying you're already late because the Holy Spirit has already gotten there and he's doing work. I, I look at my own testimony. I didn't grow up in church, but I grew up going to church enough that I knew about church. I knew about God, and I don't, although I didn't read the Bible, I knew about the Bible, I knew about the emotionalism of of worship and church. And so by the time I got to, you know, I was 17 years old at West Point, and I, I was invited to a, a Bible study looking at the Gospel of John with the Navigators, and it's like light bulbs start coming on. The, the fields were white to harvest. And so Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is going before you. When you open your mouth and are obedient to say words about your own labels and the, the stuff that, that you've been brought through in life and, and you recall and express to people 
how Jesus has loved you despite your sin and redeemed you and turned your whole life around, you're not by yourself. You don't have to be afraid. The Holy Spirit is there to help you, to help you say what you need to say, but also he's the one doing the work in the other person's heart. Verse 39. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's, uh, the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, he, uh, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because, his, because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so think about this woman's, think about her testimony for a second. She has all these years of sin in her life, and then she encounters Jesus, and then in this one small moment, we don't know how many minutes or perhaps a couple hours that she had interacting with Jesus over water drawn from a well, but it absolutely changed the trajectory of her life. And, and the, the focal point of this last part is that this woman's testimony affected people in our own hometown who came to faith firstly because of her own testimony, but then they actually looked at, you know, they, they invited Jesus into their own, in their own midst, and, and he changed their world too. And so what this says to us is that uh, just like this woman, I mean, and, and all the things going on with her, if you would just allow God to use you, um, he's going to do some great things. He can do some great things. Um, I got three things to share with you in regards to salvation and change. Think about your label. We're going to come back to that in a couple of seconds. I'm going to give you three things in regards to, to change and salvation uh, in regards to this passage, and then we're going to do something with that, those cards in your in your uh, in your seat. The first thing is change only comes to those who recognize their need for it. Is there something in your life that you need to change? Is there a label that you have about yourself that you just uh, vehemently um, just hate? You hate that you have the experience, you can't forget it. Uh, you're having trouble living it down, and you want change. This is how change comes. It comes to those who recognize. They need it. This woman is not changed if she doesn't recognize her need for it. And this is a deal with her uh, and with all of us. Our, um, our labels drive us. What was the driving influence in this, in this woman's life? It was relationship. She craved relationship. She was trying to be fulfilled by the relationships that she was in. You don't get to a husband number six, a, a potential husband number six, without some brokenness in her life. And she probably craved acceptance, and she wanted to be wanted. She wanted to be loved, and she thought that this love has to come through a man. And she was looking for a perfect man. And she went through the first imperfect man, and the second one, and the third one. All right, ladies, you know there's no imperfect man in here, right? They don't exist. <laughs> I was for free. And so she continued to seek that man. The second thing, change only comes to those who confess and repent of their sin. Change comes to those who confessed 
and repent of their sin. And so this woman, uh, by the grace of God, admitted her brokenness. And this really means that we have to uh, we have to get to a point where we're willing to admit our brokenness. And brokenness is simply you got some stuff wrong with you. And, and in all the ways that you've tried to fix yourself, you cannot. You're trying hard, but it ain't working. And all of us have a little bit of brokenness, brokenness in us. And I would tell you, especially for the men in the room, this is really hard for us because we don't like to admit that we're broken. We don't like to admit that we got anything wrong. We don't like to admit that there's something about us that we can't fix ourselves. We're fixers. But this is a requirement. Jesus requires you to confess that you're broken and to repent of your sin before he can do anything else in regards to change. Thirdly, this is the last one. Change only comes when we confess Jesus as our sin bearer, our Messiah, and our Lord. I don't say this in jest, but, you know, the first step is coming to Jesus for salvation. It's, it's acknowledging I'm a sinner in need of uh, the restorative, redemptive grace of God. And, and he, he's the one that comes and forgives me of my sin and reconciles me to God. That's the first step. But, but here's the, the hard second step. And then, you know, actually some theologians would say you, you can't separate these steps. First you come to faith, but at some point you got to make Jesus your Lord. And, and I, I call it making Jesus your Lord is like you get to that point where no matter what, all right, Jesus, I'm going to obey you. And, and that's what we see here. This woman has made Jesus her savior, her rescuer, her sin bearer, but she also made him her Lord. In, in, in minutes, in, in hours of an encounter with Jesus, she, her labels were exposed. She's like, there's nothing I can do about them. I'm not even going to try to hide anymore. It is what it is. I, I need help. And, and she was immediately obedient. And part of her, obedi- her obedience was to go and tell people about it. And I know that spirit, I mean, that scares me. I mean, I debated about how many labels I was going to expose to y'all this morning because I got some. But here's the deal. You got them, too. Here's the beauty of, of Jesus and labels. And this woman is a, is, a, is a testament of it. Jesus uses our labels to, to change you, but he also uses them to change his world. Did you see what happened? This woman's label, as bad as it was, he used it to, uh, to, for her to have this intimate, up-close um, encounter with Jesus, but with, with her stuff all out in the open, she immediately went back to those who knew her and knew how messed up she was, and it changed their world as well. And that really is what Jesus wants to do with you. Go ahead and pick that card up. As we close our service, I want you come, back, come on back up, musicians. I want you to take just a couple seconds and list a few of your labels. Think about this. How have you been labeled in your life? What experiences have you had that have marked you for years? Perhaps you have yet to overcome it. What are the things that drive you even today? And as we take communion, there's a basket here. And inside the basket are some labels. And the labels up here says, Jesus covers my labels. Jesus changes everything. So this really is a great exchange moment.
It's a moment for us to, to acknowledge and confess our sin before God, to acknowledge those things that have marked us in life, whether you brought it on yourself or whether that experience was brought on you by someone else. And it's an opportunity for you to, to, to give your label to Jesus. And, and this, is a, this is the miracle of it. Jesus does not take your label away. What you did is what you did. You can't forget it. God doesn't even forget it. Scripture says that God remembers our sin as far as the east is from the west. He selectively chooses to not remember your sin so that he could issue you, he could give you the, the, the beautiful grace of God that, that's wrought by Jesus' death on the cross. But what Jesus does do, and this is why we take communion, he comes. He comes with his perfect label because he had no sin. And he covers your labels. Lust, pornography, pride, greed. My house isn't big enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm overweight. No one likes me. He covers all those labels. He tells you you're loved. He issues you grace that you can't get outside of him. So take some time. Take as much time as you need. Write some labels down. When you're ready, the communion elements are here. As you take communion, not only exchange your label, remind yourself, Jesus covers my label by his death on the cross. That's what we're celebrating at communion. The gospel says that God loves me enough to die, to die in my place for my sin. Take the bread, lift it up, and say, Jesus in my place. He's wearing my labels. Covering up, you know, covering up my labels, taking on the ones that are really yucky, and he gives me his grace instead.